Welcome to Demystify Innovation. I'm Jonathan Foster. And I'm Hannah Sorefeld. In this episode, we have a fascinating conversation with Professor Chris Gray, who reveals some deep insights into fundamental questions about organizations and innovation. Occasionally, we're lucky enough to benefit from the simple brilliance of others. This is one of those occasions. Professor Gray has a profound answer to the eternal question, what can you do to increase innovation performance? But his answer provokes another question. Does your organization have the courage to take on board a difficult message? The answer to that might just tell you where the future of your organization lies. In our conversation, Chris begins by unpacking the fundamental paradox between control and autonomy and how that affects innovation in organizations. He talks about, amongst other things, the truth behind leadership, followership and culture, unintended consequences of various organizational forms and how you'd be better off celebrating failure. Innovating while staying within a particular rule-based framework is a bit like improvising jazz. Is there a way to make sure your organization plays great jazz? Well, maybe there is. Relaxed while we hit the right notes once again on Demystify Innovation. Oh, and by the way, Professor Gray has written a number of excellent books on organizations. His two most recent are Decoding Organization, Bletchley Park, Organization Studies and Code Breaking, and then Secrecy at Work, The Hidden Architecture of Organizational Work. These books are published by Cambridge University Press and Stanford University Press. So sit back while we, let's say, decode innovation. Look, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, speak to us here on Demystify Innovation, Chris. Uh, let me start by asking you this question. One of the classic concerns within innovation and with law, large organizations is uh, how to organize so as to be consistently innovative. Uh, and packed into this are ideas about the nature of creativity and processes of innovation, that sort of thing. What does organizational studies have to say or, or does it have anything to say about this? Um, I think, it, I mean, in two ways, the answer to that is yes, I suppose, on, you know, on the one hand, you know, this is a long standing stream of, 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 of academic research, which is specifically about creativity and, and, and innovation. But aside from, if you like, that kind of specialist uh, research literature, I think there's a more a more generic sense that we can sort of think about organization studies as having a particular dimension vis-a-vis creativity and, and innovation. And it's this, that the fundamental property and fundamental tension and fundamental paradox of organizations is something between, uh, on the one hand, control and on the other hand, autonomy. So it seems to me that those are kind of fundamental building blocks and necessarily fundamental building blocks of organization. Why? Because organization must in some sense be about control because otherwise we would simply be talking about a kind of self-organized spontaneous order. There's some sense in organization that it leads people to do something different to what they otherwise would have done. That's to say to be organized. And that's also the reason why manifestly organization at some level is about the exercise of power and the exercise of control. But on the other hand, organization is always in some way about autonomy. 
at least unless we envisage a fully kind of roboticized workplace, um, because there will always be issues about uh, about uh, individual choice, individual judgment, individual discretion uh, about how, how how they do things. So there's a tension between kind of control and rules and organization and, and, and autonomy and freedom and judgment. And of course, manifestly, that tension becomes greater the more we're talking about work that involves some level of um, uh, some, some some relatively high level of skill or judgment. So whenever it's about kind of, you know, sort of professions or knowledge work or anything like this, you know, then that tension becomes, if you like, the more manifest because those kinds of work are very, are very are impossible really to achieve without some degree of autonomy. And yet they have to occur within some framework of control if they're to be organized. So there's that kind of general and, 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 and sort of generic yeah, tension embedded within organization itself. But a kind of naive response or reading of that would then be to say, okay, so creativity is located in the autonomy bit and organization is located in the control bit. And I think the reason that's a naive view is because it treats creativity and innovation as well, which is perhaps not entirely the same thing, but, but it treats those things as if they were properties of individuals. Yeah. So I suppose it has lying behind it a certain kind of um, sort of liberal and individualized model, ultimately a model of the artist yeah, as an individual creator, right? Um, and so then we were kind of saying, okay, so you've got this individual who might do certain kinds or want to do certain kinds of creative things. And then we've got kind of organization that somehow impedes that or, 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 or puts some sort of barriers or limitations around it or something like that. But I think that, that and, and, and I'm not necessarily saying that you, know, you can't describe situations where that is true, but I think that the more, the more significant way of looking at of thinking about that is to think about the ways in which creativity is a collective product, right? So in that sense, it wouldn't be about there being there being control versus autonomy, but and creativity being the autonomy bit, there would be, you know, in the same way as with any kind of organizational practice, it's lying inside the kind of force field of those two sorts of things. And so what that would then mean, um, I mean, a kind of metaphor, I think, to, 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 to capture that and to kind of understand that would be to think about music. And, you know, we would, we, we would understand music to be, a, you know, in part a kind of creative uh, act. But it also exists within and really only makes sense within and is only achievable within a certain kind of framework of rules. Yeah. Now, we, we can configure those differently. So the kinds of if we think about an orchestra, it's creative. It's not really understandable as an individual product. It occurs within a kind of a framework that delineates fairly precisely in some ways what people should do, but that doesn't preclude them being creative. And then certainly if we sort of think not about a classical orchestra, but if we think about something like jazz, then you could think in terms of, you know, improvisation as being one of the sort of hallmarks and sort of light motifs of jazz. But it isn't a sort of a complete free for all. And its condition of possibility is, you know, the jazz band, perhaps itself, um, or certainly uh, the, the, you know, the traditions and cultures and, 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 and rules in some very loose sense of what of what playing jazz means. Right. And so then we kind of have a vision or a notion of creativity, which is organizational and which is inside that framework of um, 
of, uh, of of autonomy and control, but doesn't sit at either of the poles of autonomy and control. Does that make sense? Okay, in that case, what I'd like to ask is, if we're trying to predict and control human behavior in order to maximize the possibility for good innovation and in some ways unleash creativity, uh, taking into account what you've just said about creativity and control, is there a middle ground? Is there a way to professionalize the innovation process that maximizes people's ability to innovate as a community? Can that be done? I mean, I mean, there are so many things kind of nested inside that, and, and I mean, and, and one of them, you know, itself would be the notion, which is which is a slightly difficult one, I think, to to operationalize it, you know, which is the maximization of creativity, and you know, what 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 that would really look like, and and you know, them, and and I mean, there might be some kind of context in which we could measure it, and maximization would be meaningful, like maybe, you know, an organization that perhaps were to sort of say, okay, well, yeah, you know, how many how many new patents do we do we do we you know do do we file this year or you know some you know so, something like that, but I mean that's quite a you know that's a very mechanical kind of kind of version I suppose of creativity and and, and of innovation, um, but look I mean to but 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 to speak more more directly to your question I mean I think what we find all the time in organisations is a constant kind of oscillation between those you know between those things, um, and it is because of the fact that. Um, you know, there is no, you know, there is no optimal point. There is no final resting point, and that's because, not least, because of the fact that, that you know, the organisations exist within time, right? So there isn't a sort of a moment when we say, well, that's, well, that's it. And so, more specifically, what you kind of see, I think, all the time in organisations is um, a tightening of control and a loosening of control, as each of those modes of organising gives rise to its own, um, its own, its own consequences including unintended consequences you know so so i mean to be a bit more concrete i mean i think an obvious sort of example here is that in a lot of um in a lot of public sector organizations certainly in the uk but but but, but, but more more generally as well uh, certainly in recent years you know these ideas of well we have to move away from the old kind of rigidities of bureaucracy and bureaucratic rules in other words control and that people have to become uh, and particularly and particularly uh, leaders, which we could talk about as well, um, that they have to become uh, more innovative, more entrepreneurial, um, uh, all of those kinds of things. And so that then charts a kind of a, in organizational terms, it kind of charts a shift towards something which would be seen as more post-bureaucratic. So less rule-based, more values-based, um, uh, 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 less hierarchical in terms of uh, you know numbers of layers of hierarchy, all of those kinds of things. Um, but the 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 unintended consequence here is that the more that people have the freedom to uh, to innovate, the more they have the freedom to innovate in ways which are damaging, right? Um, so we could see in a way bureaucratic organisations, particularly in the public sector, are a, are a kind of a way of, of managing risk. They're a way of, by ensuring through strict procedures that certain kinds of things can't happen, right? As soon as you change that calculus, then you can argue that you open up the possibility for people to do, you know, you know to do better things, you know, to, to do great things, to do, you know, more creative things. But you also open up the possibility of them doing things that go terribly wrong. And in particular, you know, uh, uh, certainly, you know, the extreme edge of that, I suppose, would be, um, which we've seen in, in, in some parts of the UK public sector, for example, you know, with school leaders getting much more freedom from rules and then and then and then and then quite literally stealing money. Right. 
you know, defrauding. Yeah. Um, and of course, that's not the intention of this move away from control, but it's an unintended consequence you know, that we give people more freedom and they will use it in various different kinds of ways. And then, of course, when that starts to happen, the imperative for the organization is to uh, is to say, well, from now on, we must have new procedures to make sure this can't happen again, which is to say to invent new kinds of rules and new kinds of controls. And so that then, you know, that, so that then moves you automatically to the other end of the sort of or towards the other end of the continuum. And and then you do that. And then you start having another set of unintended consequences, which is suddenly all of these new procedures. Um, and, and again, you can see it in the public sector a lot you know the british national health service would be an example of people sort of saying but hang on you know now there's all of this kind of tick box bureaucratic uh, culture checking what people are doing and it's stifling um not just stifling innovation but also that you know that is that, that, that it's costly as well and so that then opens up the impetus to go in the other direction and so on. so so the reason it oscillates is because there is no right answer yeah there is no optimum point. There is no golden mean. Yeah. And so it's embedded in the nature of organization that it moves and oscillates in that way. You, you mentioned measuring success. You can measure how many new products or inventions, you know, you've come up with or to what degree has an organization changed business processes, uh, you know, these sorts of things. But at the end of the day, that's always in order to increase profit or market share or if your creativity is predetermined in that sense, uh, what effect does that have on innovation? Well, I, I, I mean, the, the fundamental difficulty there is that the link between some particular act of creativity and profitability is the, the causation of that is very unclear. Yeah, I mean, it would normally be very. I mean, unless you're talking about, unless you're talking about an organisation where there's really only. You know, which perhaps is very small and there's only you know one activity and then you can more or less say that but in an organization of any size making the linkages between between what people do and the profitability of it is very difficult i mean this is actually something which is very um you know acute and important if we do think about the issue of, of leadership which is which is not unrelated um to creativity because there's actually never been any um any clear and unambiguous evidence that um, that leadership is linked to organizational performance, whether we call the performance profitability or not. Um, you can see, um, and, and even paradoxically, you know, you can find some evidence that that that, that good performance is linked to poor leadership, and and that sounds counterintuitive, um, but uh, but where if we talk about um, thing here the context of teams and team leaders that 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 the, one of the, the phenomenon has been observed whereby teams that have poor leaders uh, actually perform very well because the team itself kind of binds together to try to compensate for the inadequacy of its leadership and therefore performs better so what do you do with that? Do you then say, okay, well, we should then, as a matter of policy, appoint people who we think will be poor leaders? I mean, that would be a kind of nonsensical, I think for most people, a nonsensical kind of notion. But it does speak to, you know, it, it, does, it does speak to that. And on a wider uh, kind of scale, you know, there's also just the issue about the ways in which, you know, organizational performance can be linked to uh, you know, simply if you like to kind of, you know, to, you know, to dumb luck, yeah. And that, you know, if 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 you know, if you or I were the captain of of of, um, I'm not very good on football, but let's say Manchester United, since it's kind of well known, you know, you know our team is going to beat um, 
some tiny village team yeah because it's a better team right um and so if we then kind of say you know oh wow you know jonathan is really a fantastic leader you know leading manchester united in, in, in this kind of way you know it, it, you see what i mean it, it's it's not clear where we can ascribe the kind of the causalities to and so i think that so i think we've got that general that general kind of, of difficulty but there's but there's something else more precise i think which is worth saying about 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 creativity and innovation which is that um, and if and if we're talking about the question of of what organisations might do to promote that, then paradoxically, it seems as if tying creativity to successful performance is likely to diminish creativity. And the reason for that is that creativity requires the taking of risks. And in order to in order to really encourage and allow people to take risks. You have to be tolerant of failure, yeah. And so, if you try to tie creativity to success, then you're likely, as an unintended consequence, to make it more likely to fail. Because to make people be creative, they have to have the 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 they they they, 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 they failure has to be non-punishable, right? And by not punishing failure, you make success more likely. Which is a weird, you know, feels like a weird kind of thing, but but, it, but it's a common, it's a commonly understood phenomena amongst, you know, the classic example is Silicon Valley entrepreneurs. That it's commonplace that people will start endless startups, the vast majority of which will fail. So if you are in that environment and you talk about having failed, that's not psychologically punishing for you or organisationally punishing. It shows precisely that you've got what it takes yeah and so it's that and so if you think about that inside an organizational context if people you know a corporate context i mean you know if 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 if, if, if people are not uh, allowed not just allowed but, but but almost like celebrated for failing i mean it sounds very very paradoxical but almost celebrated for failing then you don't open up that space in which there is the possibility of taking the kinds of risks that the most creative um, endeavours require. Yeah. Okay, so that, that's fascinating. And it's interesting to unpack some of those things. I think some of the approaches within corporate innovation are about opening up a space to allow failure to happen. Um, there are attempts to make the link between the risk and failure and success seem to work. Uh, and, and in that sense, things seem to be performing quite well. But in terms of leadership, uh, maybe there is a different attitude. P people are always talking about leadership and applauding leaders and saying that leadership is where the organizational culture is formed and this allows innovation to happen and, you know, and that we have to try and find the right-minded leaders and the rest of it. But from what you're saying, perhaps this is not the most sensible approach. Well, I, I mean, I think I think it's not, an, an, and for a variety of reasons, which is also to say that the idea that the idea that leaders as individuals are so uh, important for the formation of culture is actually. It's a very, let's say, anthropologically naive view of what culture is, right? It assumes, you know, it assumes, assumes culture is something which is driven from the top, whereas culture is actually formed out of, um, you know, in, in a in more, in a kind of bottom-up way and formed out of the practices that then kind of exist. Which isn't to say that leaders aren't important in some way, but they're just not important in the way that's conventionally understood. And the most obvious way to understand that, I think, in terms of leadership is to understand that 
the precondition for any kind of leadership is followership. Yeah, there is no there is no possibility of lead, you know, if you are you know, the classic image in sort of management texts of, you know, of the great charismatic leader with bold visions and so on. And so on. if you are that person, charismatic, full of vision and all the people around you think that have no buy into this at all or, you know, what are you? You're not a charismatic visionary. You'd just be seen as as insane, perhaps, or deluded, certainly, you know, something like that. And so we have to understand the relationship at, at the at the very least we have to understand leadership as being a socially embedded process which 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 is in in which leaders are as dependent on followers as followers are dependent on leaders yeah and so the formation of culture in general or i suppose what you, you know you're more interested in in this discussion of sort of creative cultures and innovative cultures um leaders can you know, leadership can kind of do can do things around that, um, but it but it but it but, but but it can only but it can only do it if it's in ways which are sort of consistent with the cultural grain of the organisation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So in a sense, we're going back to the power within organisation again and the attempt to control followership. Yeah, but but in a way, you know, the notion that power resides in any particular place is is a certain kind of illusion yeah um and, and it's actually commonplace as people you know advance in organizations or in politics to see it as well to kind of like really you know you think oh you know if only i get to that next position then i really have a power to power to make a difference but then when you get there you kind of realize well it's not really you know it, it's not really there yeah um uh, and then oh but okay but if i were to get to be right at the top that's the person who really has the power you know but i remember um having a meeting with a, a chief executive of a successful firm. Um, and uh, up on the wall of his office, he had a, a, a thing displaying the, the stock market price of his company. And so in a certain way, you could say, where does the, you know, where does the power then lie? You know, and we think he's the powerful guy, but actually, you know, this, this, you know, this anonymous market, you know, making a second by second judgment on his company. You know, but yeah, that, you see what I mean? So, so it then becomes, you know, and then you sort of, okay, so well, the power is in the market then, is it? You know, but then you sort of go into there and say, well, well where is the market? It's a series of kind of actors, actors dispersed all over the place. And so nowhere can we really find the kind of, the, you know, the power. And then in a way we end up, you know, in terms of organizations coming back full circle and saying something like, well, the power of this organization lies in, you know, you know the the you know, the people themselves who 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 inhabit it. You know, and I'm not trying to say so. That's the answer. That's where power lies. I'm trying to say there is no answer to that question. Where does power lie? It's really interesting that you say that. We did an episode uh, recently where we talked about the link between going public uh, with shares on the, on the share market and the consequent innovation performance, uh, which inevitably suffers because everyone is concerned about those numbers on the wall behind your CEO. And the quarterly report, uh, you know, so power is shifted in a sense outside the fences of the company, uh, and this leads me to think, what would be the way power should be distributed throughout a company in order to positively affect its innovation? I mean, currently we have external shareholders and a, and a kind of strong hierarchy as typical. What about democratic ownership, for example, where everybody has an equal say? Or what, what kind of effect would this have on a company's innovation performance? 
I mean, I, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, but, but embedded in the question, there's, there's there's a kind of a an assumption or at least a hope that there could be a kind of a formula which would be the answer. Yeah, and I'm not sure you know, that that there is, but but but. I mean, to be concrete about it, I, I, I worked, I think you know this, I, you know, I worked for, I was a professor at um, Cambridge University in the business school for a long time. I was there for 10 years. Um, and, um, and so obviously there's the university, which is, which is, you know, very well, well known, but well established. Um, and then around it, um, there's a, a very thriving high tech business sector. Which people refer to as Silicon Fen, as a kind of you know sort of sort of nod towards Silicon Valley, and, and so this and so these companies would be, or many of them were very successful, um, uh, and some of them have become hugely so. And um, what you would see there would be that there's a lot of them are spinning out of the university, and they carry with them, I suppose, a university culture, which at least traditionally is quite non-hierarchical quite collegial in the in 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 the in the old or the original sense that 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 the body the organization the college is in some sense um owned by the community of scholars that inhabits it and so that's is quite a kind of um uh, participative uh, model and shared ownership model of organizational practice and that as I say, I think that informs the cultures of, of many of those kind of spin out uh, companies. And um, and it means that, for example, those companies, you will find people making their own choices about what projects to be involved in, something like that. And I had quite a lot of contact with, with those kinds of companies for various reasons. Um, but it was certainly noticeable that as they grew, this became different. And I think, you know, there's the issue about ownership that you, you mentioned and that and it links to my point about as soon as you try to measure it and say it's got to succeed, it almost it almost goes away. But I think it also is quite importantly about size, not just about ownership. Now, these two things are obviously linked because typically as organ it's when organizations get bigger that they that, that they would they would tend to think in terms of going public. For, but even if they don't do that, the fact of getting bigger does, it seems, Know, lead to there being you know greater degrees of control, more attempts, for example, to uh, appraise performance or something like that. And you know you are you ask about organisation studies and as a discipline and one of the kind of very I don't know what you call it really sort of bedrock knowledges in organisation studies is that as organisations get get bigger that they become more 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 bureaucratic effectively they become more rule based. And the reason they become more rule-based is, well, it's partly to do with the, you know, the issues of control of scale in terms of in terms of in terms of human beings, um, but it's also about the idea that there's an increased probability of repeated events. So whenever you get repeated events, you set up procedures in order to say what do we do in in, in relation to repeated events. But that, in a way, if you like, is the antithesis of creativity, as we've been talking about it. Yeah. So it feels as if there is a kind of a trade-off here between size and capacity to innovate and be creative, um, which is why I think that you know, sort of big big organisations that want to innovate are often very keen to um, to have smaller you know, really to break things down into smaller composite teams and divisions and so on. So I'm not sure we've kind of gone around the houses and I'm not sure we've, we've, I've quite answered that, but, but I suppose I'm, I am, I, I suppose I am kind of saying that 
there seems to be some connection between organizations that can be more participative due to size or ownership or or, or something like that and, and that and that feels like a place where you're going to get more you know more extensive innovation so this might be one of the reasons why large corporations seem to focus on the ideas of agility so much what they're doing is thinking about what you're saying uh, being able to move quickly and create small departments and try to rebuild something they've lost through uh, the larger size yeah no i think that's right sort of you know you know be, be big and act small but 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 the question is is you know to what extent that is possible and what and what and what limits are around that so to round this conversation up then uh, we're not sure that leadership is the right way to go <laughs> things oscillate backwards and forwards there's never a moment in time when we can say it's done there's fundamental control versus autonomy problems is there anything that organizations can do to, com- to to confront this obvious mess of difficulties yes i think there is but it's but, it, but it's it's a very it's a very paradoxical answer the way you control it more is to cease to try to control it yeah so the 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 kind of the key word here i think is probably something like serendipity you know, but it requires, you know, people talk all the time about strong leadership and that kind of thing, you know, to, you know, the strength that it requires to say, I'm not going to try. Yeah, that is a that is a very profound strength. Yeah, it, it takes a lot of nerve for uh, someone in business to say, OK, I'm just going to see how it goes. Yeah. But that idea that 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 some that, that in some strange way, you know, the less you try, the more you'll succeed. Yeah, in, in terms of, in terms, in terms of, of control. I think it is well founded, and, and I mean, I, I just want to mention, which I know that I think you're aware of, but you know, the, 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 this 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 work which I did, um, looking at the way that uh, Bletchley Park was organised in the Second World War. And Bletchley Park, you know, for 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 for, for people listening who don't know, was was a was a place where uh, during the Second World War. Uh, the code breakers, primarily British code breakers, uh, worked on and successfully worked on uh, breaking German wartime codes. And it was a, it was a, I mean, it was a, it was a, a, a very strange kind of organisation. And we haven't got time to talk about all of it, but it was one which which combined um, very high levels of creativity. I mean, this was doing stuff which was you know, absolutely cutting edge technologically, technically cutting edge kind of work. It's the place where the first semi-programmable computer was built. Um, and and yet at the same time it also had in a certain way a factory like quality as well because you know it's only at, at the height of its kind of operations it was it was churning out you know vast volumes of decrypted intelligence material and the ways in which it did that if you looked at it organizationally you would conclude as many people did at the time and later historians when they found out of it they said this is chaotic this is anarchy yeah this isn't what an organization should look like because there's no proper lines of control and command and, you know, all these kinds of things. I, I could, you know, there's, there's a book, Decoding Organization, where I write about this in detail. Um, but, but my point is, is that out of that chaos, some people want to, would want to say, oh, it worked despite being chaotic. But the argument that I would make and do make about Bletchley Park is that it's not that it worked despite being chaotic, it worked because it was chaotic, yeah? Now that's a very difficult message for for business leaders to to accept because it's kind of saying, okay, so 
what I've got to do is I've got to accept chaos. Yeah. And, and I think, and I think people are often resistant to that kind of message, but you know, in a way I think that, you know, it's not, it's not good enough. I think for, for business leaders to say, Oh, we recognize it's difficult and you know, all of these kinds of things, but tell us how to do it. And then you say, well, to do it, you have to do this very difficult thing. Yeah. And then to respond to that by saying, Oh no, that's too difficult. Well, okay, fine. But in that case, trap yourself forever in this kind of wheel of looking for this golden solution. If only I do it this way, I will create uh, create uh, uh, an organization which is creative, innovative, and so on and so forth. And year after year after year, being kind of puzzled, you know, well, why is it and going to the next guru and the next perhaps consultancy firm or the next, you know, business podcast or whatever it is to try to get you know to try to get the answer and all you're doing if you respond in that way is you're like a hamster running around in the wheel saying there must be i must get to the end i must get to the end of this um and you never do because there isn't the answer of the sort that you think there is the solution but it obviously takes huge courage if you're the hamster running around on the wheel is to jump off the wheel so accept chaos let go of control and basically follow a kind of buddhist innovation (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, uh, I I hadn't I hadn't I hadn't got to the Buddhism uh, uh, the Buddhism bit, but 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 you know look there are there are degrees of things here, but you know it doesn't have to be as extremist as as doing absolutely nothing, right? But 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 I think there's something about some degree of relaxation about it and some degree of acceptance, and certainly you know I mean you know even leaving aside if you like that more extreme you know as you might say Buddhist message, I mean certainly I think this thing about saying that if you want to foster creativity, then you have to have an organization which is um, not just acceptant of, but, but you know, absolutely relaxed about failure. Um, then I think, you know, in other words, the, you know, the, the failure of particular ideas and, and so on. Uh, you know, I think that is a, you know, I'm not keen as you've gathered on prescriptions, but I mean, I think that is a, 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 a clear and workable prescription. Yeah. Uh, on that note, it's been a rolling, rollicking conversation with you, Chris. Thank you so much for your time. It's been wonderful. Um, yeah, cheers. Okay, you're more than welcome. So there you are. Organizations are a continually oscillating work in progress, and the more you accept failure, the more chance you have to build success. But if you really want to improve your knowledge of innovation, make sure you don't miss the next episode of Demystify Innovation. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jonathan Foster for Foster Media and Hannah Serfeld for Amplify Innovation. 